Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Uptime Podcast. Really busy episode. We have a discussion on the Manchin-Schumer Inflation Reduction Act and what that's likely to do for renewable energy. We talk about uh, a company that's developing a 50-megawatt rare-earth-free offshore wind turbine generator and the, the implications for that in the future. And then we, we deep dive, in a sense, with the metals company, who is trying to pull metals from the ocean floor and why we need to go do that and what the complications and environmental impact of that going to be. At the end of this, we have an interview with Josh Rangel, president and CEO of Rangel Renewables based in Houston, Texas. They're a big O&M wind turbine maintenance company. They're busy right now going around the Midwest, replacing blades and and fixing up wind turbines and doing doing repowering projects. So it's a great interview with Josh. So stay tuned. It's going to be a excellent episode. So the Manchin-Schumer administration is uh, putting together a bill that it's supposedly going to pass through Congress. And there's it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. I think the first response from everybody in America is like, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So, and, and, Rosemary, you don't even know about inflation in Australia, do you? Because in, here in America, we, you know, we are like at 8%, 9% inflation rate. We're, we're talking about right it a now. lot too. So, the, 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 are you? We could, we could send you some oh, of our inflation if you'd like. Pretty, We'd be glad to do, cool to do that. Not, not going higher. <laughs> Thanks anyway. <laughs> so the they're well don't say Americans aren't generous. So the 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 deal is uh there there's a broad mix of so pretty much anything you could think of is in this bill. It's the craziest thing. It's like seven hundred pages long. I was scanning through it over the weekend thinking, my God, who no who can put all this together? But let me give you a summary of all the things that are inside of it. Uh basically it's gonna have uh include tax uh, rebates or uh, production tax credits, what it sounds like for wind and solar, and then eventually bring in storage, battery storage as part of it. Uh, Green hydrogen is part of this mix where they're going to give tax incentives to create green hydrogen that is not created by natural gas. So, but you're allowed to create some CO2 when you create this green hydrogen. There's, there's a, graduated scale there. I don't know who ever came up with that. Uh, they're also going to open up some oil sites in the Gulf of Mexico for drilling that the administration has said they, they weren't going to close, but were closed. And now they're going to open them back up again. So there's a, a, a weird mix. Now, the goal, the goal for all this is to get to 40% emissions reductions by 2030. And that 40% is based on 2005 emission levels. So the the people who are in the know looking at what the emissions are going to be based on this bill or this proposed bill think they're going to get to still 40% reduction, which I think is amazing. Uh, and part of this uh, conglomeration of items, so there's tax, different taxes going to be applied. There's tax rebates being applied. But it, it's now broadening the scope of renewables. It's very similar, I thought, to what's happening in, in the EU, where uh, not that natural gas is 
clean, but nuclear is coming back into the fold. Batteries are coming into the fold. Green hydrogen is coming into the fold, which they haven't been in the last couple of years. So my, my questions to everybody here is, one, uh, do we really think we're going to get to a 40% reduction in emissions if we're drilling and still using petroleum-based products? Two, there's a big push on offshore wind. Is, is it now? It just seems like the, the, the golden child is offshore wind and maybe offshore solar. We'll talk about that in a little while. Is, is that where America's future is, is it in offshore wind? And drilling off the shoreline, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, is that where we're going? Oh, some of those things are on, on the way. I, I really have a tough, tough uh, time believing in this. But the quote probably cut emissions to roughly forty percent below peak U.S. mid. That's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of marketing uh, speak in those those numbers and the way they're presented um, to to reduce to forty percent by the things that this this bill is saying. It's more than a long shot, I believe. I believe we we you might see a ten percent reduction, uh, and of course that's an uneducated number. But to you would have to have sweeping, sweeping change in the way that our culture in general um, digests energy to have a forty percent below cut. I mean, it's just. Right. I mean, right. Rosemary, maybe you can speak to what you think about that 40% number. Yeah, I haven't dived too deeply into it because it's not my country, I guess. <laughs> but um, I have been on Twitter a lot. And one really annoying thing about this bill is they're calling it IRA. And it's like, no, that acronym is already taken. <laughs> that means something. So you keep on thinking that, you know, like there's, there's trouble in, in yeah. uh, Ireland again. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so maybe, maybe you guys are American, so maybe you can sort that out for me, please, because it's... Uh, <laughs> It's irritating, but I will say that um, you know, like I follow a bunch of um, climate—I don't know—climate interested people, climate activists, both on the engineering side, the science side, and you know, some some other kind of third side. Um, and they're always incredibly cynical about every <laughs> every political thing that happens. Is the general vibe on um, you know climate change Twitter? Let's call it. And they're not about this. You know, people seem genuinely excited about this as being the first real thing that America has has done, the first real chance that America has to, um, you know, like reduce a big chunk of emissions quickly. So, um, yeah, I've kind of dodged, dodged out of giving my opinion, but my general sense from the community is that people – think finally this is something real. And I think the bipartisanship of it is one big thing as well. I doubt they're going to get that. <laughs> I don't think they're going to get bipartisanship in it at all. I think what's going to happen is the Republicans are, going, are not going to vote for it. The person you're, you're talking about is uh, yeah. Joe Manchin, who is essentially the president of the United States in most matters at this point. So Joe Manchin is from West Virginia, and it's a coal state. It has been historically a coal state. And, and so when he's sort of the deciding vote for most all bills. So if the Democrats want to pass something, they need Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, who's from Arizona, to agree to it. They're the two uh, 
I don't know what we call them, Joel. They're they're like the the Mustangs, yeah. the, the 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 renegades of the um, Democratic yeah. Party. So okay. you mean so they, they they need those? They're two Republicans, votes. but they're not like leading the party or anything. 50. It's just a couple of votes that no, no, the no. Democrats know that they can sometimes convince over. Everybody here is a Democrat. Everybody here is a Democrat. <laughs> they have fifty Democrats. You have fifty Republicans in the Senate, so they're split fifty fifty. The deciding vote is the Vice President of the United States, who happens to be a Democrat. So if they can get 50, all 50 Democrats to vote for this bill or to get it through. Um, there's some procedural things that have to happen. The vice president will cast a deciding vote, which will be a Democratic vote. Therefore, it'll be 51 to 50 and it'll pass. That's the process they're in because I don't think any Republicans going to vote for it right you now. Can, That's what. So you're you saying that, that, like that Democrats have to convince other Democrats to do anything at all. Yes. When that's their whole platform. Think of Manchin as like this, like a centric Democrat where he's like right in the middle where he might go either way, but he's kind of leaning towards the Democrat side. So right now they just have to convince him and then they have the 50 50 is, is the way I, I, I would look at it. Right. Or yeah, 51, yeah, exactly. yeah. 51 with the, the VP. So the, but the house now, so there's the Senate and the house right. house is completely different because the house has, 472 members, I think it is, something of that sort. 435. 435. Alan's it's paid more attention to civics yeah. class than I did. And and that goes by the, the you know, the population of states and different things that where they can, you know, have their electoral delegates and whatnot. So that they're two separate bodies, but they have to be rectified or sanctioned or not sanctioned, but uh, a bill has to be passed by both of them. And then it goes to this. So it's passed the House because the House is Democrat majority by far. And then it's on to the Senate and then they have to ratify it once they do, then it can get signed into law. There's a lot of but stuff that, in this bill, like, um, you know, even down to re reviving some old uh, tax benefits Buy a buy an EV. If you're in a certain tax bracket, you can get a forty five hundred dollar rebate or seventy five hundred dollar rebate. Um, that stuff is cool. But I think yeah. the thing that pertains to um, the three of us and our general focus uh, usually is reviving the production tax credits in the U.S., because I, uh, where I sit in the industry, I'm, I try to communicate through a lot of people about production tax credits. What does your business model look without them? What does it look with them? And now if this gets passed, you're going to see a massive push of new installations. Uh, and new installations drives, hopefully, we, we've been talking in the last few months about some of these, you know, a nacelle facility and a blade manufacturing facility shutting down. If this if PTC stuff comes back up and all of a sudden the orders start flowing because now people can get production tax credits when they build new, you might see some of those things open back up. There's that's the I mean, and that's how this ideas work, right? Once we put the put the incentive back into the market, then we start at some manufacturing facilities. Now we've created some jobs. Um, so, I mean, I, I can speak clearly from at least two examples I know where I've had clients tell me like, we're just going to sit on this project and wait until we see what PTC happens. If PTC gets passed, um, because, yeah. you know, last November, that was the big push. And like, I think it was, a, it wasn't the build back better bill. There was another one. Either way, it didn't make it. Um, and it was, everybody was kind of waited on, you know, waited on bated breath, like looking at is PTC going to go. If this thing goes, you're going to see uh, wind domestic, domestic onshore in the U S wind development, spur back up you're going to see it kick off you're going to see demand for cranes you're going to see it i i believe so well yeah, that's one of the parts of the bill where they're really trying to push the domestic content of wind turbines and I, there's not a lot of uh offshore wind what, what there's not a lot of 
wind turbine components, finished components that are shipped to the United States, maybe except from Mexico. Well, I guess Canada doesn't count either. So from Canada, Mexico is probably where most of those components come from. Uh, I'm, and they are trying to source them in the United States, but they won't be run by United States companies for the most part. They can be run by companies that are based in Denmark. Or but at least it's Japan creating some jobs, or, right? You're bringing uh, some jobs Germany. back to these these communities. So yeah, that's, no, that's it's great. true. That, that's good. It's just we're in this weirdly weird cycle like we've been talking about where all those factories have closed and they have to start them back mm-hmm. up again. It's not the no. ideal situation. So there's there's more to come. And who even knows this, this is going to pass. Right? It's, it's probably going to get altered by the time it finally gets to the president's desk. So there's more to come. Get the latest on wind industry news, business and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. Greenspur Wind, which is a UK-based motor generator developer, not motor, generator developer, is working with Nyron Magnetics, which is a Minnesota-based company, uh, to create a rare earth-free permanent magnet generator. And they've been working on this for a number of years, and earlier versions of this were just essentially too heavy. So think of a direct drive generator. It's basically permanent magnets and coils of wire, and bang, you make electricity. But the the big problem, obviously, everybody's worried about rare earth minerals coming from China and Australia and other places where they're really difficult to get their hands on. And the United States and Europe, don't want to do that anymore and they're trying to develop their own sources so you have to think about making generators in a completely different way so the way that greenspur is thinking about a generator uh is it's the opposite of the of every electrical engineering <laughs> cell in my body so the way that the, the way that magnetics work in a motor everything's kind of rotary everything's everything's spinning around what uh greenspur is doing is moving the magnetic fields uh Radio, actually, along the act, is that right? Um, yeah, so yeah, so that we're moving in radio flux generators, uh, to a uh, basically a completely new setup. So they have now uh, designed a 15 megawatt generator, and I think 15 megawatts it screams Vestas and it's, it screams Siemens, it screams GE, and they're they have. I guess they're still trying to make a deal with one of the, the OEMs on this on this direct drive generator, but their big problem is weight. They're just trying to drive the weight down. Now it sounds like at the moment they were able to reduce the weight by like fifty percent or so, and, and instead of using steel and copper and other things, they're using aluminum, which is just lighter weight. So they're really trying to hone this design. And my, I guess my question is, are, are we really that concerned a, a design like this, a, a real, relatively new way of making electricity in a generator is uh, we're going to move to something like this? Or it just doesn't like in the, in the, in the recent bill that's going through Congress, rare earths are rare earths. I think there's still a feeling like we're going to be able to get our hands on some, but maybe not. And what do you do if you if you can't? What do you do? You have to change the way you make generators. So is things like Greenspur and Naira Magnetics, which is uh, based near the University of Minnesota, are, are they the future? And, are, and they have patents around this too, I assume. So that means you have to pay them for the patent and buy the motors from them. It's just a very odd setup. I mean, the technology sounds cool, but is this the way we're going to go? Yeah, I think it's it's good to have a, a variety of options. Um, so uh, rare earths are a 
a supply chain problem at the moment. They're an environmental problem at the moment. Um, and there is definitely plenty of people, companies working on ways to address that. So, you know, you've got projects, um, I think mothballed projects in the US that are opening up again and new new mines coming online and same in Australia, you know, because uh, rare earths aren't, aren't rare despite the, the name. They're everywhere. The issue is that processing them is is hard because right. they come in really low concentrations and they tend to be co-located with some nasty stuff. So, you know, they do nearly all of the, the rare earth mining happens in China at the moment and um, they're just incredibly problematic from an environmental and health perspective. You end up with, you know, radioactive um, <laughs> tailings that are, you know, causing local riverways to become radioactive and, you know, huge, huge health problems for people that live in those areas. And that's the main reason why <laughs> countries other than China have been kind of pretty content to sit back and let China supply these cheap rare earths. Not that other countries couldn't be um, mining and processing our own rare earths. It's that we don't want the environmental impacts of that or we don't want the cost to make sure we don't get those environmental impacts. So that's one route to go down is to just get, you know, get better and cheaper at processing these minerals in a less environmentally right. destructive way. Because, I mean, Australia and the US and other other countries – Probably every, even China now, I think, is starting to feel like it's not worth the, the trade-off, um, you know, to get the economic benefit, but the environmental and health impacts. So that's kind of like one branch. And then the second branch is to reduce the, the use of rare earths. And I don't think that there's anything that we make with rare earths that absolutely needs rare earths. I think there's always a different way. And um, I know we were talking earlier about the, uh, I was reminiscing about my high school physics class where I remember we all hand wound um, electromagnets, right? You know, you get some copper wire and you sure. wind it around. And I remember my dad had a, a woodworking lathe in the, wood, um, in the workshop. So I was able to leave my project to the night before and still, still get it all done because I just kind of wound it all on the lathe. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked really well too. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, we all we all know how to make a, a a magnet without rare earths in it, but it's just a matter of you know optimizing the overall cost. The rare earths make really strong magnets, which means that you can make things smaller, which means you use less materials, which yes means lower weight, but usually low weight is also associated with low cost because you just use use less stuff. So. Um, <laughs> Is it the weight, Rosemary? Is it the weight that's a driver? Are they concerned about the weight on top of the tower? Is is that one of the design constraints? Yeah, they are. And I mean, if you look at the difference between a direct drive generator and a, a, a gearbox generator, then the direct yeah. drive ones are huge, right? You, you can easily pick, um, right. you know, like the Enercon onshore wind turbines use direct drive and pretty much everyone else uses gearbox and it, that's why they had those huge eggs for a while around the nacelle because it's just like a really large yeah, yeah, yeah. diameter component that needs to fit in there. Um, so you can imagine that you don't want – there is some pressure to make that smaller. It's a big weight sitting on top of a, you know, like a really tall, skinny tower um, and it, it starts oscillating and, you know, like it, it causes problems for the tower and the foundation um, if if you okay. have – the bigger the weight is. In generally, everything you want everything to be to be light and 
maybe the generator weight isn't the most important weight on a, a wind turbine. You know, like probably the blade weight is more important, but it's certainly not irrelevant. But also just, you know, if you've got to make it huge, then there's a lot of material in that. And so overall it's a sure. cost yeah, optimization yeah. where you're adding material to actually just make the physical size of the generator and you're adding material to the tower to make it strong enough to hold this big mass. Um, yeah, all of those things. So I, I think that definitely we already have have some solutions to the rare earths problem, but it's really great if we have another solution that lets us make stuff that's more like what we have now, you know, which which works really well um, and mm-hmm. also doesn't use rare earths. So I, I don't know how um, promising this specific technology is, and they say 56% mass reduction but they don't say what relative to i don't know if that's relative to their relative to the earlier design which is too yeah first design which is too heavy i'm told it was too heavy yeah yeah but what's that got to do like is it is it lighter now than a rare earth um using generator i'd be surprised it seems like it's it seems like it's it's think it's more in line with the rare earth generator than it was in the past it seemed like it was they were told by oems hey this is too heavy we're not going to deal with it so they had to reduce their weight and cut it in half by using yeah well, just basically a different design and a lot of lighter materials like aluminum. Yeah, and then it will depend on how much cost they added for doing that light weighting. You know, if you can you exactly. know, um, make something half the weight, but now you're using unobtainium to, you know, to make it, then that isn't necessarily going to be a more appealing, a more appealing um, prospect. But to isn't it an OEM, in, in comparison? So. It's in comparison to what though? It's in comparison to not having rare earths and the price of a generator just tripled. Right, so because the the mining of rare earth in America is so expensive, yeah, aren't they just yeah. isn't no, the, it's a comparison is yeah, it's a matter of time, right? It, if I'm Greenspur, yeah. I'm just waiting it out because <laughs> it'll come. Yeah, the see if will their come technology, see if their technology works. See if rare earths turn out to be the big problem everyone thinks, and we see battles like this happening all over the you know clean tech space. It's also happening with battery chemistries. Yeah. You know, like people are um, developing lithium alternatives on the expectation that lithium will get prohibitively expensive, but it may not. You know, it may it may not. And I think we need we we need all of these. You know, it's uh, it's capitalism, right? You need, you need all of these competing things, and then your survival of the fittest. We just don't know yet what um, natural selection is going to favor yet because we have to wait for all these commodity things to to play out. Um, yeah. So I definitely am pleased that there's research like this happening, um, but I wouldn't necessarily place a large bet on this specific company. Thinking here about 15 megawatt offshore generators, there's not going to be that many of them installed in the world, right? If there's, in the next 10 years, if there's 5,000 of them installed, 10,000 of them installed, that's five or 10,000 units. Well, that's a great influx of cash for Greenspur if they were all the Greenspur designs. That's one thing. But I think what I like to see here is that this technology is being explored and investigated because you know every new EV that hits the street has a gen- has a basically a backwards generator in it as well. So as our society sure. starts to electrify itself more, having more options for different kinds of electric motors is only good for, like Rosemary said, for the the capitalistic idea of of how, how we get things done. Yeah, your world changes if you don't have rare earth permanent magnets. It changes a lot. It's hard to think about that. I thought most people on the street wouldn't even consider that, but your life would change dramatically without yeah. those going I can forward, t- for sure. I can, I'll give you a life-changing moment uh, that I had with an N52 neodymium magnet. It was actually two of them, 
And I was doing the same experiment Rosemary does, but trying to make an omnidirectional um, power generator. And I had two of them separated on my desk by about four feet in little holders. They were an inch and a half in diameter balls. And I happened to bump one oh. of them with my elbow. And what ended up happening was I ended up like this <laughs> with like right here, an, an N52 here and an N52 here. And I crack, it cracked my finger. I ended up was in a, I was like this taped up in a splint for like three weeks after that because it broke my finger. So lesson learned. Explain that to your mom. Don't don't play yeah, with strong. Don't play with N fifty two neodymium magnets. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, that one's gonna be hard to explain. Yeah. Magnets. Wasn't good. I, I can make it up a lot. That's like a I got story. into a bar fight or I crashed my motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> Playing those, with those magnets. Cool. Playing with magnets on my desktop. <laughs> Physics is cool, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, have you met a physicist lately? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Just saying, engineers are cool than physicists, and we know what the where engineers rank in the cool, cool hey, spectrum. We're way down at the bottom. At the top, have right? You seen the, <laughs> yeah. Have you seen the big the Big Bang theory? You're you're opposite. <laughs> the metals company is looking to mine the seabed floor of the Pacific Ocean. So, Rosemary, roughly halfway between the United States and Australia, if you draw a line between the two, there is this area of uh, where tectonic plates are, and there's like vol volcanoes on the bottom of the ocean, and they're spewing out these minerals. And they, they, sp they spew them out as like these these rocks, these, these mineral-filled rocks that, are sit that then fall to the ocean floor. Well, evidently somebody a long time ago stumbled across these things and realized, hey, they're full of some really nice metals. Uh, there's nickel, there's cobalt, manganese, and copper in these rocks. And they're just sitting on the ocean floor. They don't even call them rocks. They call them nodules. So the metals company is proposing to uh, drop what I would term underwater drones down to the bottom of the ocean floor and pick these things up. And, and they're not attached to anything. They're just rocks just sitting at the bottom of the ocean uh but there are so many deposits down there that it's a major i guess it'd be a, a major find the the whole region is like 4500 miles long it's huge but the question right now joel and you, you you can explain some of the details is they're not so concerned about how they're going to pick these nodules off the floor the question is well are they going to be allowed to yeah so you have a, that, that clear and clipperton zone it, nobody owns it, right? It's just, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not in any country's exclusive economic zone. So there's no like governing body over the top of the thing. So the right. people that are out there right now, and it's it's because it's such a large region, there has, there's many, many, many different corporations backed, a lot of them backed by um, state governments or federal, you know, not state, but backed by governments um, or in, um, in like joint venture with governments that are staking claim to some of these areas because they believe this stuff is there. So what they're what they really want to make sure they do right for the highly visible ones is they want to make sure that they're as you think it's just this 4500 miles of silty seafloor at 4000 to 5000 meters deep. So for our uh metric speaking people that's you know 3 miles to think Tip it this way: If you're driving 60 miles an hour, it takes you three minutes to drive straight to the bottom. That's how that's how far it is. Um, 
there you would think that there's nothing really that um you're going to harm down there but they want to make sure that we we don't mess up an ecosystem because eco you know all ecosystems are tied together and in some form or another so we don't want to go messing up one that could possibly um you know maybe we do that and oxygen stops i don't know but neither does anybody else um so right now they're in the midst of, or they have been for a few years, trying to do a lot of environmental assessments, um, you know, with the machines that they have going down, basically think, think a Roomba that goes around your living room, uh, but with a hose on it that goes three miles up to the, to the sea or the sea, the surface of the sea and, and trying to suck these things up and then shoot them up to the surface and then deposit them on a boat. That's the idea. Um, so understanding what it looks like when they pull the sediment up and pull the, they call them polyatomic nodules. When they pull those out of the sediment, what does the plume look like behind? Are we actually affecting anything? Is there some kind of, you know, rare sea creature that we're going to, you know, kick out of their home if we do this? Um, a lot of those things uh, floating around right now. But there's there's been some money shoved into it. The metals company used to be known as um, Deep Green. Um, they went through an, uh, an SPAC, as we call them here in the States, this, with a special purpose acquisition uh, to get listed on the uh, stock market. Um, and now they're called the Metals Company. So they're trying to gather some capital to go and do this. Um, there was a really cool 60 Minutes episode, if you're a fan of the riveting tech TV that 60 Minutes can be, um, all about this stuff. But um, there's a long, long ways to go, but they believe that um, this could get rid of you know, the, oh, some sure. of the human rights violations and cobalt mining in Africa and the, the, um, the intense need, like Rosemary's saying, of um, mining some of these rare earth materials and um, processing them in China. Um, if, you're looking, if you look at a picture of one of these polyatomic nodules, they're like potatoes. It's basically think of like potatoes all over the seafloor and just vacuum them up. Yeah, they're really rich in minerals and metals. It's a very odd thing to see. And... I'm, I'm I'm not sure what the international bodies are going to do from just going through the metals company's website. It seems like they're in, in a holding pattern a little bit because when we don't know, we don't know. And so then everybody's imagination starts to run wild. It's like when we put a man on the moon and we thought we could bring back disease back to the back to earth. So we quarantined the astronauts for like two weeks until we were sure they didn't bring back a deadly disease. I starting to feel like that again. We just don't know what's at the bottom of the ocean floor. Maybe we bring up some weird thing or we awaken the Kraken or Godzilla or something. That's what it feels like right now. We just don't know. <laughs> the abyss. <laughs> yeah. And if, yeah. Yeah. They could also be, you know, like the, we don't know that much about the ocean. It's the most, you know, unexplored part of earth, especially, you know, when it's that deep. Yeah. So we don't we don't know what we would be disturbing and what role it plays because you know just because it's out of sight out of mind doesn't mean that it doesn't do something important and so uh, yeah I well, I hope that they're going to you know thoroughly investigate <laughs> that before disturbing it. Give me give me odds yeah. give me odds that they find it's, plastic at the at three miles down at the bottom of the ocean. What are the odds, Rosemary? Uh, Guaranteed. It's got to be close to 100%. Right? Everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So at least we could do and is they'll vacuum. And they'll find some, <laughs> yeah, well, they can vacuum out the plastic while they're there. Um, I guess that, yeah, they, that they will. But they'll also, they'll probably find some creature that, you know, it's, it's uh, there's life there 
surviving in a way that we didn't think was biologically possible. You know, they're always discovering stuff, stuff like that, um, creatures that are getting their energy from, you know, not from the sun, from different sources. There might be something cool down there. There might be some process that, you know, affects above the ocean as well that actually relies on what's going down there. Um, yeah. But you're I'm not no, going to know until no you do it. ocean scientist, but I ho- hope there's a few involved. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, just a <laughs> and little I think bit, I feel right? this. Don't like you, you should feel it too. Um, it's like, you know, that's how I feel about what we did with, with Australia, you know, when my ancestors from – England came over and just, you know, like did did whatever and then found out, oh, it turns out that the way that the Indigenous people were managing this land was actually, you know, the the only, <laughs> the only yeah. sustainable way to do it. And, and we've come in and, you know, tried to impose our our English farming methods and um, it lasted a few generations and then, and then it was, you know, like run out. Um, it, and, uh, and the same thing happened in the, the US. That's my understanding of what happened with that, that whole Dust Bowl situation and, you know, all sorts of things like that, examples of people not understanding going into a new environment, changing things, and then realising afterwards, oh, that was a terrible idea, but you can't go backwards. So it's like, yeah, are we going to take our uh, above-water <laughs> ways and, you know, go in and um, mess up this this ecosystem that turns or you know natural process it turns out to be very important to us even you know above the ocean and we won't know until we've done it you know like you like you say and so oh, i think there has to be some sort of precautionary principle where you move a bit cautiously but um on the other hand we've got urgent problems above ground as well right and if this is a you know Are we- a, a solution to a big chunk of it it would be nice to see less above ground mining for sure. I mean, I, I don't think anybody um, likes the impact of mining. We we like the products of mining, <laughs> um, and so we we tolerate it. Um, I think you just yeah, converted it's very, yourself. Very interesting. I, I, <laughs> no, I'm just I'm on I'm on the on the fence. It's just one of those tricky. It's, In, it's a trade off. It's, it's uh, the rosemary in comparison yeah. to what question, right? By itself, yeah. ocean mining is. <laughs> horrible but in comparison to children digging it out of the ground in in remote places ocean mining looks pretty good cobalt is one of those things where there's alternatives as well just like with the rare earths i mean other places have cobalt australia being one of them and you know nearly everything that uses cobalt there's a a, you know a, a very similar product that doesn't use the cobalt you don't need cobalt for batteries for example plenty of plenty of batteries lithium ion batteries don't have cobalt um, so yeah, cobalt on its own is not, <laughs> there'll be solutions to that problem without deep sea mining if we want them. But yeah, that taken, taken as a whole, it does sound like this is a big, big resource. So I just hope they go carefully. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. So Next up, we have an interview with Josh Rangel, president of Rangel Renewables, based in Houston, Texas. 
it's a really fascinating interview. He talks a lot about all the different O&M projects that they're working on and their capabilities, and it's just uh, a good conversation. So stay tuned for Josh Rangel of Rangel Renewables. Josh, thanks for being on the Uptime Podcast. And if everybody hasn't realized, Rangel Renewables is huge, right? And, and they're doing great work and they're expanding very rapidly. So I thought this would be a good conversation to talk to. Hey, the head of the company, Josh Rangel of Rangel Renewables, and actually hear from the head man of all the things that are that are happening there. And Josh, welcome to the program. Alan, thank you for having me. I'm very excited. I very much appreciate it. So as we all know, Rangel Renewables is uh, a growing business and focused mainly on construction in the larger O&M efforts in wind. And I saw some things on LinkedIn from you this week, so that goes right to that point. Uh, can you describe some of the work that Rangel Renewables excels in? Yeah, certainly. So Rangel Renewables is a turnkey wind installation, maintenance, and heavy lift service company here in the U.S. Anywhere from pre-construction all the way to commissioning, we can certainly jump on a project and assist in up tower support, whether it be providing labor, uh, equipment, tools, trucks, uh, subcontracting cranes, different things of that nature really can do the full scope of uh, the work that's being uh, asked of us. Yeah, and you're relatively newcomer to wind, especially uh, since COVID. Right? So uh, you you started Rangel Renewables in 2016 and as a small startup, and now you're, you're a, a large company, actually. You have over, over 100 employees. Uh, can you just give us a little bit of, of insight and what were those impactful moments that accelerated your business to where it is today? Yes. So, uh, you know, you have those moments in time where you uh, you have to really ask yourself, you know, are you willing to put forth all your effort and all your uh, your cards, right? Um, back in December of 2019, had an opportunity to assist uh, the largest OEM, Vestas, along with a crane company. And November, of, to put it in perspective, November of 2019, we had three employees, myself, uh, Aaron, which is on the uh, podcast as well, and another sales staff. By the middle of March of 2020, we had 103. And really, it, it's a true testament to the efforts and true grit of the men and women in the field making it happen from once again the construction that was happening on site so offloading the cell prep blade prep hub prep going up tower making sure that the support was needed up there then we had quality and it you know also brought in safety and so really the dynamic of a full-scale project started to be implemented on our end and that was something that i had always preached you go into, you know, these pitches and you go into the meetings and the phone calls and the emails and you're asking certain customers and clients, I'm not asking for the moon, I'm just asking for one shot and very humbling and, and very blessed in that prerogative to say that I, you know, kept knocking on the doors, you know, it's uh you have to have tough skin. There's a lot of people that'll tell you no and with the portfolio that we had at the time. I come from conventional power with uh, combined cycle power plants, but when you're going into your own and they're asking you, well, we don't really want to know what you've done in the past with other companies. We want to know what you've done as Rangel Renewables. So building the portfolio, building the financial status to be able to hold large payrolls and be able to make sure that you can afford to pay for your equipment and your tools and your trucks and all that's gathered with it. So you really have to make sure that you 
also have the right structure around yourself from a, a manpower standpoint and management standpoint to make sure you can be a success. Yeah, that's really important. It, it, it seems obvious at first, but it's a difficult thing to implement. And as you grew, you grew right through COVID. Uh, 2019, kind of getting your real first start. How did how did you manage all that through COVID? What was some of the keys there? There was actually the week of my birthday, and I love being on site, love being with the, the men and women out in the field. So I had left from San Antonio, and we had a project in North Texas. Well, right as I got there, I would say three to four days later, that's when you know the federal government said, all right, we're shutting everything down. Well, you know, on a personal note, I had chronic asthma when I was a young boy. So I was like, well, I don't want to <laughs> have any breathing problems because I know what that entails. But I decided to really live the life of a WinTech. I ended up staying out there several months. So it was awesome. We were running four main crane, you know, assisting guys, being out in the field, you know, running light plants and water buffaloes, running taglines, you know, helping with tools. All that really provided the experience as a new industry, uh, you know, upcoming business in our industry, I should say. Then it derived into, well, I had some of the biggest head honchos with the OEM at that site that really couldn't travel anywhere. So then the relationship starting to get built. Then identifying, well, who is Rangel without this crane company? Who can they become? What is it that, you know, drives them? The vision of Rangel Renewables is to leave a legacy and be a blessing. That truly wholeheartedly is what I want to do. I know one day it will be a global entity, and I preach that with our staff. And my favorite thing to do is praying over all of our staff the first thing Monday morning in our management call and really making sure that that is the foundation of what we do and you know talk about our why. Why is it that we do what we do and why we wake up in the morning? We're very blessed to be able to get up and say, all right, you know, I'm, I'm ready to conquer the day. I don't care if it's 12 hours, 15 hours, you know, 18 hours, and we're driving two hours to one site and, you know, three hours to another site to, you know, just go shake a hand and say hello. I'm big on making sure that they know that I'm in it for the long haul and I'm willing to do, you know, what the techs are doing and just leading by examples. I uh, also <laughs> had the privilege of working about uh, the 12 months in 2020, about nine and a half, close to 10 months, we worked around the clock, so day and night shift. So learning the aspects of what you can do during the day, learning the aspects of what you can do at night, and really that progression to say, hey, if there's a window that we're trying to chase and we're getting close to you know the end of production to where we need to go ahead and turn on uh, or energize the towers uh, for the owners, and at that point saying, well, Maybe we start a little later and chase the wind there, or we wake up really early and chase the wind when the winds are down. So it was an awesome experience. I miss being out on the road. My staff can tell you uh, I'd rather be out there, uh, you know, most of the time rather than in the office. But that's just my heart. I, I really enjoy being um, hands-on and, and out in the field. And now your geographic area of coverage area has grown considerably. Where are some projects taking place this year? So we're in Iowa, Colorado. We have several projects here in Texas. We have a few bids out in Canada right now. We're trying to land some work in Puerto Rico. So we'll know by Friday, as a matter of fact, 
And then that's coupled with trying to get some cranes on a few sites as well. So there's been a, not only in terms of employee growth, in terms of geographic coverage, you've really grown a good bit. And on the podcast, we've been discussing a lot about repowering. And I've, I've seen you guys on LinkedIn. You, you do if, if you haven't followed Rangel Renewables on LinkedIn, you need to do that because uh, Aaron does a great job. I think it's Aaron just it, taking videos and snapshots and things and giving you a perspective of what's actually happening on the ground. And I appreciate that. I think I think uh, everybody that follows you does too, and, and so repowering is becoming more and more of a thing, particularly in the United States, as as new onshore starts to slow down. It's all about repowering, keeping your stuff up and running. So, uh, from the outside looking at repowering, it seems relatively simple, but I know it's really complex and involves a lot of tasks that I'm sure you guys are, are really good at. Can you just highlight a couple of the sort of the complexities about repowering a site and how? Rangel manages those situations? I like to look at it from a 360 perspective. People are asking, why would you repower a site? It's old, there's, you know, smaller towers, there's a lot more of them. You know, you could build one tower for what, you know, 20 years ago, 20 towers could do nowadays. So from an owner and developer standpoint, repower provides a lot of reduced cost. So you have your electrical lines, a lot of the civil work that would go into building a new farm is already there. So you want to make sure that any business, right? How can I improve my return on investment by, but also reducing my cost? Repowering is that portion for the developers. Now in, you know, tangent with that, you have to make sure that all these components, whether they're gonna be reused, they have oil, you have to look at the environmental aspect, permitting, all those still are encompassed with the site, but because you have existing units out on site, you have to be very careful because you don't want to hit the, let's just say you're pulling the rotor, right? You don't want to have the rotor come out hot. It hits the boom on the crane. And now you're having a, you know, all stop and just a lot of different variables that come into play that you have to be aware of with it being a site that's still um, at, at times live, right? Let's just say there's 50 towers, 40 towers still might be online they've shut down and lottoed out 10 of them, but you also have to double check and make sure that none of them are energized. But in, you know, in people are people, right? And if there's a mistake and one's still on and they didn't realize it was still on, and then you have, you know, technicians in a live tower can really, uh, your major issues can happen, right? So you just have to make sure you, um, our three mainstays are safety, quality, and production. And I want all our men and women to go home at the end of the day to their loved ones. So just making sure we double, triple check our work um, in that sense. But repowering back in 2020 for us was 75% of our work. So we had projects in Indiana, Minnesota, South Dakota, Texas, all those really helped build to where we're at now to understand, okay, this, these are how some of the OEMs like to work. These are how some of the crane companies like to work. These are companies that like to just stay in this lane, and these are companies that like to stay in this lane. So from a repowering standpoint, it really has provided kind of a jumpstart for us because it's a, a niche market for some contractors, but in, in essence, it uh, it's given us the experience needed to continue the uh, the growth that I aspire for. Yeah, it seems like repowering is going to be the 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 big ticket items coming up in the next couple of years. Just looking at, I was just looking at some data today, actually. Like the average wind turbine age is around seven eight years old, 
and usually repowering happens plus 10 years. So you're getting closer and closer. And there's a lot of farms right now that are 11, 12 years old. And we did talk about in Minnesota where they're actually shutting down wind turbines um, uh, because they lost their PTC. So there's just like this weird dynamic going on right now. And it seems like repowering is the thing. And how long does it usually take to repower a turbine? Is it a day-long process? Is it a week-long process? How? Uh, what's the sort of time frame there? Always depends on wind, right? <laughs> <laughs> so really geographical location, timing of when you're going to have your components ready to go. But in uh, back to Minnesota, we had two projects out there. We assisted a crane company and uh, another OE, the OEM out there. And so that we were trying to do two towers a week just based off of if we had all the right tooling did we have turning gear you know where's the blade gripper so really just depends on where we're at but at that time we were trying to do at least two towers a week and what what components are being replaced are they really replacing the blades it's replacing the generators what's the typical kind of o m work that you're doing for those situations so on these particular projects in essence minnesota they were the old clipper towers we were taking full rotor dropping it down then we were taking off the hood then we were taking down the nacelle now with that particular tower we were adding an adapter and we were installing the Vestas v100 so then we'd come back with the adapter then we would uh, fly up the nacelle, and then uh, the nacelle was, well, we tripped the hub, flew the nacelle and the hub together, and then we would uh, do single stabs for the uh, the blades. Wow. Okay. That's complicated. Is that the kind of repowering? That basically switches suppliers, right? Clipper was GE. He's going from like a quote-unquote GE to Vestas. Does that happen a lot? Do they change manufacturers in a repower? Yeah, yeah. So you actually will see that a lot. Really? Yeah, we're on a site right now, and I call it a hybrid. But the actual tower components are all staying the same. We're just upgrading all the technology within the tower itself. So uh, whether that be the batteries, blade bearings, yaw drives, you know, that all is not typical in a, a repower because I'm used to taking blades down and taking the cells down and replacing them, you know, with different components. Uh, we've done Siemens 2.3s, we've done the GE 1.5s. So really just depends on once again, the developer and what uh, manufacturer we're going with in that regard. That's good work. And it, your max capabilities as these wind turbines get bigger and bigger. And now we're talking about well, on offshore, talking about 15 megawatt machines. What's some of the larger machines you've done onshore? So we've done upwards of the uh, 4.2, 4.5 megawatt platforms. To that statement, we actually had our first phone call for offshore work this week. I can't tell you how ecstatic I was. I know that's a big portion of what I want to do. I want to open up an offshore office as well and really driving the market in that regard, seeing what we need to do with unions and cranes and really educating myself to be a subject matter expert along the East Coast. But also, right, you have the Gulf and what's going on around the Houston port and what we can do here. That's something that I also will be looking into and have been looking into. But I just very humbled when I, I got the inquiry and we're jumping on a phone call and we're talking about, you know, putting individuals out in 2023 for some offshore work so it uh just really exciting and and having that conversation 
Yeah, that's really cool. Obviously, 2023 is just going to be the start. Most things get really ramped up by 2025, so we have a little bit of time. But if you have people on the East Coast, you're going to have to learn to eat sort of Massachusetts, New York food, chowder and thin pizza. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know if they got any good tacos out there. Uh, not so much, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, we, we all have to all go to Texas for that good stuff. So uh, there sounds like there's a lot of great things going on and Rangel continues to grow. What's what's the future for Rangel Renewables? Yeah, so like I said, we will one day be a global entity. We have a 10-year plan of uh, just global growth and what that looks like for our staff. I know we've hit the milestone of being over 100 technicians in the field. I want to hit the milestone of having 250 employees with the goal of getting over 500 to 1,000. And that's having a strong foundation, having the right culture. It's very team, family-oriented. It's not just individuals that I come in and I'm like, all right, I'll, I'd only see you from the the 8 to 6, 9 to 6 time frame. It's we're still having lunches together. We're going to have dinners together. When we're out on the road, we're playing, you know, cornholes and washers and, you know, hanging out and going to the movies. But really the appreciation that I have for the technicians that do this day in and day out, but then also being on the road with them when we're chasing windows and they're needing assistance and wanting to be out there and show them like, we all came out the same way. I'm gonna respect everyone the same way. I just want us to make sure that we're working hard in a safe manner so that we can execute and continue to have the growth and be provided the opportunities for future individuals in the industry that are going to be coupled with our training facility as well as as we get cranes and you know where we're going to have lay down yards and continue the growth uh, once again to provide a, a turnkey solution to our customers. Josh, will you explain the, the training piece for a minute? So you're doing something really exciting here, and I, I want to make sure everybody's aware of it. So you're actually going to establish a training facility down in Houston. Correct. We're going to do a training facility for GWO with the BST, the BTT, the ART, and then I want to couple that with the, what's going to be new to the industry, but GWO Blade as well. So that's a real big benefit if you're a technician within Rangel, is you have on-site training. You can get trained up pretty quick there. Uh, right in Houston. That's a fantastic advantage. And that's really the, the ultimate goal, but to be affordable, right? I want our staff to come in and they know that they're getting a, a great quality product. And then at that point, they're going out to the field. I don't want our technicians five, six months down the road saying, finally, after you know getting training, I can start saving money. I want them to be able to get an affordable training. And then as they come out, be ready to go and excited about their their field and learning about it and loving it, right? And that's really the type of staff that I wanna to continue to grow, to feed into. And once they get to the training facility, I get to see them, I get to say hello, I get to, you know, hang out and joke with them a bit, but, you know, all seriousness with what we're trying to do, I want them to be safe and really driving home the, the facet of, this is why we're doing this, so that you guys can be properly trained and have all the certifications needed to get to a site and say, I have all my certifications, I'm ready to go up tower, I can save someone, God forbid something happens up tower, and we're going home at the end of the day, and that's really, truly what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's huge. It's a, it's a really good idea, and I'm sure you guys are gonna do a great job of implementing it, and it's gonna make a difference in the industry, and that's fantastic. Josh, uh, th thanks for being on the podcast. And if 
if technicians are trying to reach out to connect with uh, Rangel Renewables or <laughs> a site operator needs to get a hold of you, how do they reach Rangel Renewables? Yeah, so of course, www.rangelrenewables.com, info at rangelrenewables.com, and of course, social media. I'm big on marketing and branding. We have our director of marketing here as well, and he knows my heart and how we want to reach out to, you know, individuals, whether, you know, there's green hand or seasoned in age and a seasoned technician that maybe wants to do project management or, you know, they want to get into a leadership role, uh, but certainly can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Those are some of our uh, social media applications that they can reach out to us on. Nice. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. So if you're interested, just go to the show notes. Josh, it's been great having you on the program. Thank you so much and appreciate having you on Uptime. I appreciate it, Alan. Look forward to continuing to see your success as well and uh, hope to see you guys down the road. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.